This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. I'm here today with Christina Weiland, who is an assistant professor at the School of Education at the University of Michigan. Dr. Weiland's research focuses on the effects of early childhood interventions and public policies on children's development, especially on children from low-income families. She's particularly interested in the active ingredients that drive children's gains in successful at-scale public preschool programs. Her work is also characterized by strong, long-standing research collaborations with practitioners, particularly the Boston Public Schools Department of Early Childhood. Christina, welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be here today. Yeah, and I'm glad we get to do this in person in Portland. Yeah, no, I never complain when I get to visit <laughs> Portland. It's great to be here. Glad you're here. Uh, Christina, you're also one of the authors of the book, Cradle to Kindergarten, A New Plan to Combat Inequality. That book came out what, two, three years ago? Yeah, it came out in 2017. Um, and it's a group of us who specialize in different areas of the zero to five period. And what we were seeing is that too often um, we were in policy conversations where we felt like different kids were kind of pitted against each other. So if we fund the four-year-olds, we can't fund the two-year-olds. And really what we needed was a vision for how to move forward as a whole system um, because the four-year-olds and the two-year-olds are not actually different people. <laughs> right, um, right. And so uh, having a vision around how you would move a large-scale system to us seemed like a good idea and would be really fruitful for policy conversations so that we would know where we were headed towards as we have to make incremental steps in different systems. Talk about what that means to you when you say system. We're talking about early childhood specifically, and I think K-12 is a recognizable system. People understand what that means, but early childhood less so. It feels like a conglomeration of programs or services. But what does that mean to you when you say system? Yeah, so what we have now is a pretty piecemeal system that really varies from place to place. You could be in a city like Washington, D.C., where it's uh, you have universal preschool beginning at age three, a lot of high-quality options, and you can also be in communities or states where you essentially have very little in the way of any kinds of public supports beyond federal head start. So it does depend on where you are. Sure. Um, but what we mean by that is you know, the ways in which different public and private investments touch families as they try to navigate the kinds of care options that they would like for kids, whether it's um, being at home most of the time with a parent, but going out for playgroup to uh, you know full day infant care. Now that the normative experience for infants, even in our country, is that their parents are in the workforce. For most infants, that's true. That all the adults in their homes are holding jobs. So, what is that system in terms of the care options that keep kids safe, happy, and learning? until they get to kindergarten. Uh, the book talks about diagnosing some of the obstacles to accessible early education. Can you talk about what those are? Yeah. So in our country, we are one of um, few countries in the world that really hasn't made a commitment to our young kids in the way that our competitor nations have. So a lot of it is about really uh, investing in our young kids in the way that we do once they turn five years old. So we actually lead the world in uh, spending once kids are older, but we are really a laggard from the time that they're zero to five. So one of the obstacles is creating a vision for changing that. 
and having the political will to do so, which we're starting to see with different federal proposals and from, you know, outcry from working families that even if you have the money in some places to pay out of pocket, there just are not a lot of options that you can have a really long wait list that you could be on for literally years, even if you're able to pay the full cost of care. Mm -hmm. And care in this case can often means different things to different people. Some people think about childcare. Some people think about preschool. How does that break down? You know, all of it is early learning and care, sure. right? So, you know, even with our high school kids, we're still giving them care, hopefully, in terms of meeting their broader needs beyond learning needs. But, you know, for zero to five, we emphasize in our book that parent choice is really important. We're not talking about a system in which there would be mandatory enrollment uh, right. when you're two years old. Right. Um, these are volu voluntary programs. These are voluntary programs that people, you know, depending on their situation, might have grandparent help and you and the grandparent really wants to be helping out with that child. And so that um, can be an option, but it's about giving diverse families from lots of different places and backgrounds um, and resources actual high quality options so they can figure out what works best for them. When we think about preschool, if it's done right, it needs many different things. It needs a qualified, well-paid workforce. It needs infrastructure. It needs facilities. It needs to be really connected to K-12. Talk about what it takes to have an effective preschool program. And if there's an example of what that looks like, maybe it's Boston, but what does that really look like to have it be quality, effective preschool? Sure. So, you know, I like to sort of think of it from a backwards mapping perspective, right? Like start with the teacher in the classroom. What does that look like? And then what do we need to make that really rich, happy experience in a preschool classroom happen? So from a child level, it looks like having a place that you can go to regularly where it's clean, you're happy, it's safe, you're able to be pushed for whatever your level is, right, to where you're, you're headed next. So it looks like being able to access play-based fun experiences in the different domains of early learning that are really important in preschool, like math, literacy, language, socio-emotional skills, in a way that draws on the science. Because we actually have at this point, particularly in the U.S. context, a number of really rigorous studies that point the way around what are more versus less effective ways to deliver high-quality preschool instruction. And so it's having teachers who are able to deliver that, right, in, in ways that are fun and play-based and the kid isn't stressed out or feeling overloaded. They're actually just very engaged. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some examples of that um, do are around the country in places like Boston, but not just Boston. Other places like Seattle have really um, tried to deliver on high-quality preschool and, and, and Tulsa, Oklahoma as well in which they have um, thought about what do you need for the teacher then? And so what do you need? You need a teacher who is treated in a professional manner. So they have the same qualifications as the K-12 teacher, and they're not paying a huge penalty to teach preschool. Sure. So in a lot of places, a kindergarten teacher may be making $60,000, but the preschool teacher is only making 35000 mm -hmm. or so. And so what's going to happen is you're going to have a leaky bucket problem where um, – your most qualified teachers um, that you've invested in, that you've trained in how to work with young kids, as soon as they can, they're going to leave for the K-12 system. Right. 
And so that is a problem when we think about how important early childhood development is and how much our young kids are learning at these ages, right? It's the time when we have the most brain development Mm -hmm. um, that we'll ever have in our lives. And so we want really high quality people um, who are supported and treated in a way that's fair to them and their families who choose to be preschool teachers, right? And so from there, you also have to think about the, the organizational structure, So do you have a center director who has the ability to support teachers in terms of instructional leadership, you know, or are they just trying to keep the lights on in the center? Mm -hmm. Do they get to go in and be really thoughtful, reflective practitioners around what can the teacher work on next, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of an adult learning perspective, how can I push this teacher? And for principals in K-12, it's making sure they understand the science of early childhood development so that they're not trying to make preschool the new second grade, sure, right? right? Um, right. And pushing down practices that we wouldn't, that would be inappropriate for young kids. So for all of that to happen, you have to have a commitment to beyond the school level to having the correct amount of per child funding that you're able to fund teachers to that level, that you're able to get families in the door who on their own couldn't necessarily afford mm-hmm. to access high quality um, preschool. So that takes, you know, in Seattle, it took a ballot measure. Mm -hmm. In Boston, it took the commitment of a mayor. You know, we recently had the New York City example as well. Cincinnati, they voted to tax themselves in the 2016 election to fund preschool for their children. Um, So we're seeing that it's taken political action around the country and that the cities really have been leading the way in interesting ways. We did have some states... uh, in the 2000s, make a commitment to universal pre-K, like mm-hmm. Oklahoma and West Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, for example. But we are seeing more and more that um, in this decade that cities are the ones pushing and leading their states. That's an interesting shift. Talk about this idea of universal preschool because it's gaining momentum. We're hearing more and more people pick this up as a political issue. In a state like Oklahoma, my understanding is that universal preschool was rolled out for four-year-olds. Part of what you recommend in, in the book is to extend that down to three-year-olds. How does rolling out universal preschool for three- and four-year-olds really look? And what are we learning from a place like Oklahoma that has tried it with their four-year-olds? Sure. So, you know, in the book, the way that we think about these issues is we get very concerned about the enormous achievement gaps that we see between kids at the top versus the middle class and uh, poor kids. And so what we've seen is that since the 90s, the gap not just between kids at the top and the bottom has grown enormously, but the middle class has also really been left behind. And so when we try to unpack what's happening early in life that's so different for these kids, like, yes, there has been an increase in income inequality. um, And part of what higher income families have done has invested their money into their young kids. And so we see that overwhelmingly families that can afford it have their kids in center-based care, not only at three years old, but even at two, sure, which is really hard for middle-class families. You know, they're trying to afford preschool just even at four, mm-hmm. right? So those are a year or two of extra learning in a high-quality preschool that other groups aren't able to access. So we argue to start at three because the parents are working even when the kid is a baby, mm-hmm. let alone mm-hmm. when they're three. We have these enormous um, achievement gaps, part of which is fueled by more moderate and low-income families not being able to access preschool and not for as many years, right? And so the only place in America that's really acted on this mantle of serving threes and fours has been uh, the D.C., Okay. right? So they have universal preschool again for 
three and four-year-olds, really interesting models like, you know, um, immersion programs. So they, they have really thought in creative ways about how to deliver this in ways in which families are thrilled to be part of the system, like Mandarin immersion preschool, right? For sure. native Mandarin speakers and not, right. which is something that uh, given how global we are in terms of economics and other things, I think is really attractive to a lot of families and is drawing more families into the public system so that you end up also with more mixed income classrooms, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important when we do roll out these systems that we're careful about what actually happens in the preschool classroom. And so in our book, we really highlight some of these active ingredients that have driven progress in Boston, but also um, progress around the country around um, certain kinds of curricula that have been developed um, according to the ways in which children develop. Mm -hmm. So um, we know a great deal, for example, about how math develops, right? And if you see a kid who's able to count reliably to five, what do you do next? Right. So we have curricula that guide teachers through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of what uh, we would like to see and what we recommend in our book is greater utilization of that science and systems around the country. So train teachers in it, um, have coaching, mm-hmm. just like we have for our athletes, where you have a qualified expert mentor who comes into the classroom and works with the teacher around, um, you know, I'm having trouble keeping this kid focused in whole group time? Like, do you have suggestions for what to do for this specific child? All the way to the teacher is having trouble facilitating small groups, right? And so help that teacher get, target that teacher's struggles as well and have the teacher voice in there around what do you want to grow? Ongoing skill building for for the professionals who are working with our children. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're an evaluator, for the study that's ongoing in Boston public schools. And, and I, I know that Boston has been recognized as leading the way in preschool. Talk about what's happening specifically in Boston public. And I'm also thinking about ways in which preschool has is being more deeply embedded into the K-12 system, into the elementary school setting. What does that look like? What are you seeing? Yeah, so Boston has been an interesting case study. So we, uh, you know, 10 years ago did a study of their program um, because they've used the kind of curricula that we recommend around language, literacy, and math, in particular, play-based, fun activities that follow the science, right? That's And treating teachers well. And um, they, as they built this strong pre-K program, started to get worried about what was going to happen to the kids next. So they leave the pre-K classroom, they go down in the hall to kindergarten, and too often they were in settings that looked um, like the criticisms of kindergarten nationally, which was worksheets, lots of whole group activities, stuff that didn't match the science of how young kids learn. Rows of kids sitting in desks, that kind of, that imagery, yes. right? Yes, yeah. yes. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, not the kinds of hands-on fun learning that a lot of us, um, you know, probably remember kindergarten as in our day. And so what Boston's tried to do is actually push the good stuff of preschool up. Okay. So let's take um, play-based but rigorous, serious learning and make that, you know, what we do in kindergarten as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, they're in the middle of a preschool through second grade curriculum reform where basically kids are doing play-based learning. They're also really getting pushed on critical thinking. So sometimes what can happen in K-1-2 is that those early reading skills, early math skills are so critical, they can really dominate. And what we know is that 
Um, it also really matters the kids' vocabulary, their world knowledge, that that stuff is really going to drive their outcomes in third grade and beyond as well, not just being able to decode the word, mm -hmm. but to understand, okay, that's a vocabulary word I haven't seen. What does it really mean? And so it's an approach that's trying to balance having those critical skills in place, but also working on the other stuff that particularly upper middle class kids tend to get outside of the classroom through rich conversations at dinner. They might be introduced to very big vocabulary words or, you know, they may be able to access things in the community on the weekends. Mm -hmm. um, you go to museums, other things that cost money that other families are kind of shut out of. Music lessons, different kinds of yes. classes, workshops that, yeah. 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 And so it's sort of trying to balance the constrained skills like knowing all of the phonics rules, you know, so that you can be a strong reader, but also having content knowledge and world knowledge so that you can understand what you read once you've decoded it. And so that is rolling out across the district. They're constantly refining it, bringing in experts to give feedback on, is it strong enough? Does it match the science? Because the reality is in this country, we don't have any proven preschool through second grade aligned curricula. Mm -hmm. You can't go buy one. They mm -hmm. don't exist. Right. Um, and so it takes some tinkering and thinking about what's needed. Um, something else that's very exciting in Boston is, um, you know, they've done work to make the instruction more culturally relevant, right? So making sure that if they buy a curriculum and the books don't have enough diverse kids, that they swap them out, mm -hmm. right? They get that lesson across, but they make sure the kids see themselves in the curriculum. And so that's another critical piece of what Boston's doing. So it's a district that is um, majority kids of color, majority low income. That's a really important piece of this as well, too, is making sure that the kids feel valued and can see themselves from an early age. Classroom. Are there preschool classrooms operating in multiple languages? Yeah. So in Boston, there are some preschool classrooms that are Spanish immersion. We also, there's also Haitian Creole, um, Vietnamese, there's a Mandarin classroom. So the, some of those are sprinkled around um, the district as well. So you, you talked about these developments happening in preschool and not wanting those kinds of changes or changes in how kids learn what they've learned to fade in kindergarten. You don't want them to lose. You want kindergarten to then be able to take those kids and help them advance at the pace that they're ready for, right? right? And how did that, where did that come from? Was it district? leadership that saw a need for that? Was it teachers that were driving that? How does that come into play in Boston? Sure. Well, and I can talk nationally, right, for what do we know from the research. So we have some studies, some very rigorous studies that have shown us that um, we can take preschool kids, we can do a great job teaching them math, but then if in kindergarten the teachers don't adjust the curriculum for the fact that, say, half their class already knows the, a good deal of the kindergarten content, the Preschool kids are kind of in a parking lot that year mm -hmm. for a while. And it's great. We want the kids who um, aren't able to attend preschool or their families, uh, you know, would rather have them at home. We want them to do well. We want them to flourish at the same rates, but we don't want to do so at the expense of not building on the gains of the kids who've already been through preschool. Right. 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 And so um, the district leadership in Boston recognized this is something that they needed to attend to, but we also pay a great deal of attention to teacher voice. So, you know, a lot of our kindergarten teachers were telling us too, like common core standards have come in. These are very high standards. You know, I see that the kids who come out of the pre-K program have higher skills. So am I meeting their needs? So it's it's sort of a shared conversation. Sure. And I think that ideally that's true, you know, that it's not just 
the district on high, but it's also the people who are in the schools every day talking mm-hmm. with principals, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, around what are they seeing and where do they feel like they need more supports. And you talked about it being this pre-K through two initiative. Do you see this as something that expands all the way through elementary school up through fifth grade? I think we'll see, yeah. right? I think it's already a lot just to do um, preschool K-1-2 around, you know, getting this to a place where it is, you know, meeting the needs of kids and sustaining learning gains from pre-K. So I'm sure that there are districts around the country working on pre-K through third grade alignment. And I doubt, you know, as a reform initiative that it will suddenly stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's definitely been where there's been a recognized need around repetition of content, around not enough focus on vocabulary, world knowledge, problem solving, too much focus on really the constrained skills without you know, you want both. So um, that's where I think we're going to see over the next five to 10 years where districts go. What are the implications for what's happening in Boston nationally in other states? How does that impact what's happening across the country? So, you know, there's been a great deal of interest around the country. And, and you know, some of the work that Christy Cowers, who was at the University of Washington, is now at the University of Denver, has led around what's a pre-K through third grade framework for alignment. So there are interested parties all over the country working on this. So um, I think we're going to figure it out together <laughs> is really where, uh, where we're headed. And so in you know the book, we talk about the zero to five space and we recommend kindergarten alignment mm-hmm. because there's just been in some places, again, there's essentially very little access to public preschool, particularly for those who need it the most. But it is more of a early childhood is really zero to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so those efforts matter. Eight matching third grade matching, which is that key benchmark year, right? So that's the importance of age eight and third grade, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> all of those ages are important, right? So we know that if you're behind in reading at the end of first grade, that 90% of those kids don't catch up, Yeah. right? So even very early that these skills are critical and that our public schools are working very hard, but they're just not able to overcome the achievement gap that's there on the first day of kindergarten and sort of is there the entire <laughs> um, time we have kids from K-12. So when we think about these models around the country, I wanted to get your take on what you're seeing in Oregon and how preschool implementation is happening here. Sure. So, you know, Oregon's made some exciting and interesting investments in the last few years on like the Preschool Promise program, for example, which is a way to expand preschool in this state up to children who are at 200% of the federal poverty line, which was something that wasn't in place. So you had Head Start and you had a program called OPK that built on Head Start, but the income cutoffs there are lower. So Mm -hmm. you're getting kids who also have um, less access to private preschool in the door. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we see in Oregon versus in national data that the percent of kids who go to preschool here is 61% for threes and fours, which is the same as the national average and um, about the same as other Western states. But more families in Oregon are paying the cost of preschool than is true nationally. So about 28% of Oregon uh, threes and fours attend public preschool, and that's a bit higher in the United States overall. Okay. Right. And so Oregon families are being asked to stretch a little bit more Mm -hmm. than, say, a a family nationally on average in terms of meeting the learning and care needs of your threes and four year olds. Um, I think one of the most exciting things in Oregon is that 
The team that's come in to lead the early learning division, so Miriam Calderon, um, Sarah Mickelson, have had great success in other contexts and Mm -hmm. um, know the research Mm -hmm. and are really trying to connect research policy and practice in Oregon and chart the way forward. So there's a lot of really great momentum in this state and the knowledge that if something doesn't work, let's try something else, right? Like let's learn from research in other places and apply it here. So that kind of openness and creativity um, is a really a great asset to have as a state. Christina, it's been great speaking with you today. I'm glad we could do so in person here in Portland. Great. Thank you for having me. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Don't forget to tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And you can find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.